0: Hi, this is Him we Proclaim with Dr. John Fonville. We're on the threshold of a new series today. You know, one of the hardest topics to preach on is sexuality, mainly because it's a sensitive issue, and sometimes there's a lot of baggage, and there are younger ears around, and how do we keep this appropriate for all who hear this message? Well, you know that John Fonville brings every topic back to the gospel, which is where we find our healing and hope. We look forward to more gospel encouragement today as we open up scripture. Here's John with Do You Not Know? Part 2. Listen to what
1: Tim Chester writes, and this is, such a, this is such a good insight. Tim Chester says this, he says, A longer talk about sex needs to go talk about grace. And not just grace in the abstract, which we're going to get to. This is general. I told you today is general, but we're going to get very specific with the gospel, not the sin. We need to talk about grace, not in the abstract, but the grace of God in the death of Christ. Christ dies in our place, burying our guilt, so that there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for porn users. That's some of you here this morning because these statistics tell us so. There's no condemnation for adulterers, sexual fanaticists who are in Christ Jesus. This is not being soft on sin. Quite the opposite. It takes sin so seriously that the only remedy is the death of the eternal Son of God. That's very serious. Look at the cross, look at the cross and see what God thinks of your sin. The death of his own Son is the only act that can atone for what you have done. But in the act is grace and love and forgiveness and adoption. There is no condemnation. Churches are full of people desperately trying to self-atone for their lust. Desperately trying to sort themselves out. Desperately trying to prove that they're good enough for God. And our message must be it is finished. Christ has done it all. And so this leads us to one final introductory point. All of us are deficient in our knowledge of the gospel and its implications for our lives. And the reason I know that is not only because of experience, but by inspired scripture. The Apostle Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians asked this question, do you not know 10 times? Six of those 10 occurrences are in chapter 6, and four of those questions are in relationship to this particular sin. The great 17th century gospel preacher Ralph Erskine, who is my favorite person to read from the 17th century, He said this, quote, They that think they know the gospel well enough bere reveal their ignorance. I'm just going to read that again in case you missed it. They that think they know the gospel well enough reveal their ignorance. No man can be too evangelical. That means gospel-saturated, centered, however you want to call it. You can never be too gospel centered because it will take all your lifetime to get a legalistic disposition destroyed. I love that quote. (laughs) That's one of the greatest quotes I've ever found, reading from the 17th century. Paul reveals in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that the problem with the Corinthian believers was that they didn't really know the gospel and its implications for the specific sin that they were dealing with. That was their problem. Paul asked this question over and over. Do you not know? Do you not know? This question is intended to draw the Corinthians' attention to a cardinal truth of the Christian faith that ought to be self-evident to them and not escape their thinking, which is the same for you and me. What should not have escaped the Corinthians' thinking and what should not escape your thinking in this area of sin is the gospel and its implications for living a sexually pure life. Do you not know that the gospel is what leads to a sexually pure moral life? You don't know that. I don't know that. But we're going to learn together from this passage, because Paul is going to be, he's going to be like a laser with the gospel, and he is going to just take, listen to what he does. Because the Corinthians didn't know this was true, Paul will appeal to specific gospel truths and their implications such as this, the doctrine of regeneration, the doctrine of sanctification, the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of resurrection, the doctrine of union with Christ, the doctrine of redemption on the cross, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the fruit of the gospel, as the remedy for the Corinthian sexual immorality. Now, I just, uh, if we took a survey, I wonder how many of you have ever picked up a book and and read with this particular sentence how regeneration, monergistic regeneration, sanctification, justification, resurrection, union with Christ, redemption, and the fruit of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I wonder how many of you ever read a book that said those doctrines of theology is what leads to a morally pure life. I would begin to think none of you. Not explicitly like this. This is exactly what Paul's gonna show us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul's concern in chapter 6 and chapter 5, where he starts this whole conversation, we'll see that in weeks ahead. But Paul's concern in chapter 6, in fact, his concern in the whole book is to set forth, listen carefully, here's his concern, it is to set forth a gospel-centered vision of community in the church. Does that sound familiar? Make the gospel paramount in all things. (laughs) Throughout his arguments in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is not only concerned for the welfare of the individual, he's also concerned for the welfare of the church and the community. Paul, listen, the failure of the Corinthian church to act according to gospel-centered ways was damaging the church's unity, and it was damaging the church's witness to the world. And so Paul says that this lack of gospel centrality brings reproach upon Christ and his gospel. And so Paul is addressing the failure of the church to be the church, who they really are in Christ. Christ. As what we're going to see Paul doing is, Paul is calling the church to be who they are. Live lives commensurate with who you are now in Christ. They were suffering an identity crisis. They didn't know who they were. There were some things they did not know. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? It's all over the book. Do you not know? And no, they didn't know. And you don't know. And I don't know. And we need to know. The reason for the sexual failure in the church was because of the ways of the world their pagan past had infiltrated back, had crept back into their life, and it had replaced the centrality of the gospel and its ethical implications for the church's life and ministry. That was the problem. And so listen to this Bible teacher. He says, as before, referring back to chapter 5, verse 1 to chapter 6, verse 11, which we'll come to later. But he says, as before, the gospel is at stake, not simply the resolution of an ethical question. And that is the exact opposite of how churches teach on this subject. It is always an ethical question with the gospel tacked on somewhere at the very end. But Paul says, it is not what the the issue here is not simply the resolution of an ethical question. Now, now we're going to see Paul is not shortchanging ethics. Don't be deceived, Paul says. Those who are serially unrepentant, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. You better repent. You better be pure. But that's not his approach. That's not the issue. The gospel is the issue and the gospel is at stake. That's the issue here. The fact that the gospel is at stake leads us to two last concluding points in our reflection as we consider the centrality of the gospel and the problems that we face in our daily Christian lives. So here's the first as we finish. All of the problems and imperfections that we experience are failures to be conformed to the gospel. All of them. Listen to what Graham Goldsworthy says. He says, as we begin the Christian life by placing our whole trust in the Christ of the gospel event, so in the same way, we continue in the Christian life. The gospel not only brings us to the new birth and faith as Christians, it is God's means of saving us totally. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. This means the whole of salvation for the whole person. The gospel converts us. The gospel sustains us in the Christian life. And let me just add, the gospel purifies us in the Christian life. That's Paul's point here. And the gospel brings us to maturity. And the gospel brings us to perfection through our resurrection from the dead. All the problems and imperfections that we experience are failures to be conformed to the gospel. The only remedy, the only remedy that the New Testament prescribes for our problems is to bring our lives to conform to the gospel because the gospel leads us to have lives conformed to God's law. You see, the believers in Corinth were messed up theologically and morally. The Corinthian Christians were full of arrogance and pride. They were full of factions. They were suing each other in court. They were tolerant of gross sexual immorality. And erecting theological arguments in defense of it. That's what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 6. They abused their freedom in Christ to an extreme. They corrupted the Lord's Supper. They misused spiritual gifts. They lacked love for each other. And they were utterly confused about the doctrine of the resurrection, which is the highest hope of the gospel. And you know what? In each case in this letter, you know what Paul does to address it? He interweaves law and gospel, but the gospel is always predominant. The law's there, and, and he doesn't shortchange it, and we're going to see it. It has a powerful place for us, and we'll, we'll see that. But in every case, Paul's strategy, you know what his pastoral strategy was? Weave together law and gospel, but lots of gospel... To point the believers back to it and its implications in every specific instance. If it was factions, here's the gospel, and here's how the gospel applies to it. If it's suing each other in court, here's the gospel, and here's how it applies to it. If it's sexual immorality, here's the gospel, and here's implications of how it applies to it. If it's lack of love and abusing spiritual gifts in the Lord's Supper, here's the gospel, and here's how you approach it. If it's the doctrine of resurrection, here's a whole chapter, the biggest chapter in the Bible, on the true doctrine of the resurrection. This is always Paul's strategy. This is always Paul's pastoral strategy for dealing with sinners in the church. He's calling on these believers who have trusted in Christ to act in accordance with their new identity. And the problem is, as they were having an identity crisis, they didn't know who they were. And so listen to what this writer says. He says, for all their so-called knowledge, the Christians at Corinth had lost sight of the centrality of Jesus Christ, the controlling power of the Holy Spirit, and the transforming experience of having been called and saved by God. They didn't know this. Second, never assume that you know the gospel and its implications for your life. Never assume that. The gospel is so odd, it is so against the grain of our natural inclinations that nothing less, listen, than a miracle is required for hearing it and applying it in our life. Learning to live a gospel-driven life, the true way of godliness, requires double the work. Walter Marshall in the 17th century, who is one of my other favorite authors from the 17th century, Listen to what he said to his church. He says concerning how to live according to the implications of the gospel for your life. He says, on the one hand, you have to unlearn many of your old deep-rooted notions of how to become godly. On the other hand, you must pray earnestly to the Lord to teach you the true way of godliness. And he quotes Psalm 119, 5 and 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and then I shall keep them to the end. And then Paul prays this, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 5. You see, we're just prone to revert back to our old ways unless we are constantly driven out of ourselves by the Holy Spirit through the ministry of word and sacrament. And this was precisely the problem with the Corinthian believers. Instead of growing and bringing their lives into conformity with the ethics of the gospel and the ethics of the kingdom of God, they were still being influenced by the ethics of the kingdom of man, their pagan past. And Paul says, but you have been delivered from your pagan past, but such are some of you. But so now that you have been washed and sanctified and justified, he's saying to them, live lives commensurate with your new status as a citizen of the kingdom of God. This is who you are. And so Paul, it's interesting, he doesn't give anywhere in chapter 6. He doesn't give anywhere in chapter 5. He doesn't give anywhere in any of his other letters. Listen, what he doesn't give He doesn't give ascetic, moralistic, or exemplary examples and arguments to motivate believers to live pure lives. Nowhere. In fact, he condemns them. Many of you know this from personal experience, and it goes like this You have been given endless rules, vowels, software filters, accountability talks, and challenges, challenges to be like Joseph. Challenges to not be like Samson, who they call a he man with a she weakness, popping rubber bands every time you have a bad thought on your wrist. And the list just goes on and on and on and on and on ad nauseum in the church. And however, spiritual these approaches appear, you know what they do? They actually promote self confidence rather than Christ confidence. And, and, and in and of themselves, they're totally powerless to do anything about the flaming desires of your heart. How do I know that? Listen to Paul, Colossians chapter 2, verse 23. Ascetic practices, popping rubber bands, that's asceticism. These, Paul says, indeed have an appearance of wisdom. Well, it looks so spiritual, man. You're so committed. <laughs> you look at the guy's wrist two weeks later, he's got Blisters. These have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Do you know what the only thing that will give you hope in stopping the indulgence of your flesh and struggles with this area? It is not following steps, techniques, and principles for sexual purity. The only thing that's going to give you hope is found in knowing the gospel and applying the implications of the gospel to your Christian life, specifically to that sin. And that's it. And there's no other way. This is what Paul teaches and what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to close with a letter that illustrates this exact point that I'm making. I received a letter this past week. And I think most of you as we finish will just completely understand this person and where they are. The letter that was sent to me is entitled, The Modern Evangelical Remedy for Sexual Sin. That was a great title this person sent me. And so listen to what this person wrote. Quote, no battle has left me more battered, bruised, and frustrated in my Christian walk than sexual sin." For years and years, I received various counsel from people in the church that I would confess my sin to on the right way, he puts it in quotation marks, the right way to overcome the temptation. I read books on sexual struggle. I read Christian pamphlets on 10 steps to overcoming sexual temptation. I tried to motivate myself in all kinds of ways, and at one point, even branded myself. Do you hear that, asceticism? He branded himself with the Bible verse to try and get serious about overcoming my sexual struggle. I think the worst part of my whole struggle was the feeling that I would never be able to get past it. And even more, no one could tell me the means by which I could actually overcome the sin. So here's a few things that I was told to overcome sexual struggle. First, when you're tempted, you have to run like Joseph did from Potiphar's wife. So go run a mile or hop in a cold shower. Second, Your problem is you don't have accountability, so you need to find a group of guys that will hold you accountable. Third, every time you look at pornography, you're hurting your future wife. It will affect your marriage, and in the future, if you continue to do this. Fourth, most of the affairs of the people I know started with pornography, so you just have to stay away from it. Fifth, when you're tempted, go read your Bible or memorize scripture that you quote to yourself in times of temptation. Get on your knees and pray at that moment. Six, try this step-by-step approach for defeating the struggle. So he was given a step-by-step approach. Seventh, make a list of all the consequences of sexual sin. Number eight, go to the gym and work out whenever you're tempted. Well, Most guys would never leave the gym. (laughs) Number nine, whenever you blow it, set up an immediate consequence where you have to pay a financial penalty to someone else in your accountability group. This will make you think twice before you give in. I'll set up the account and you guys can just start making contributions. (laughs) Number 10, last but not least, just try not to think about it so much. Well, that's helpful. You see, the best way to overcome it is to just to focus on God and just don't let your mind go there. Oh, okay. Thank you. This were 10 real life struggles with an individual who was just about on the brink of absolute insanity because of this sin. This is not made up stuff. This is a real person writing their heart to me saying, help. So I sat this person down, took them through 1 Corinthians chapter 6 for the first time in their life. And so listen, this is the second part of the letter. Although there were some good points in the ways that people gave me to overcome temptation, there was no power in any of it. I know from personal experience, because it's all capitals, it never helped me. But the gospel, however, has totally altered my perspective. The constant reality that God sees me as if I have never sinned and just as if I have always obeyed has slowly but surely started producing more and more power in my struggle. No one was ever specific enough to explain to me that the only way I would ever deal with my depraved heart was to learn more and more about what Christ did on my behalf. No one ever really clearly explained to me what I had in Christ. Do you not know? I don't know who I am. In short, no one ever taught me to preach the gospel to myself, and whether they meant to or not, they inherently advised me to just simply go back to more law. Most of the remedies I was given were quick fixes. They would deal with the problem temporarily, but it would always resurface because in reality, my issue is one that is burrowed deep in my heart. The gospel, although it is not a quick fix strikes my struggle at its core and has been truly a freeing experience. I still struggle all the time, but the freedom I have experienced in the gospel has begun producing a genuine, heartfelt desire to refrain from sinning against the Lord." The gospel has begun to give me a power I never understood growing up. Only in the Son Hall capitals, only the gospel produces true spiritual growth and holiness. There is no other way. Do you not know? This is the question that leads us to moral purity and what we don't know is evidenced by this letter is driven home by scripture and that is this that the good news of the gospel is the key and the only key to moral purity there simply is no other way
0: thanks john that's do you not know part 2 more from the series coming up next time the mission of him we proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday And it's our prayer that your heart will be filled with joy and a clear understanding of the gospel and God's word. If you want to hear a past broadcast, check out our podcast in iTunes or download our app. Just search for Dr. John Fonville in iTunes or Google Play. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to visit Pastor John's church in Jacksonville, Florida, you're always welcome. You can find out more at paramountchurch.com. I'm Josh Montez. Thanks for listening and join us next time.